from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Where would we be without expediency and self-interest? Well, we'd be a lot better off if that were possible. I'd like to tell you of the part expediency and self-interest played in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You cannot frustrate God, do you see? You can oppose Him, but only you will pay the consequences, as did these men. You may oppose Him, but Christianity will spread. The Bible says, Surely even the wrath of men shall praise thee. The Bible says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, What Shall We Do With Jesus? Have you ever gotten frustrated sharing the gospel with someone else who refuses to believe? Have you ever wished you could take that person back in time to actually hear Jesus teach and see him perform miracles? Surely that would convince your friend to follow Christ, right? Well, not necessarily. The Bible says many people saw Jesus work miracles and believed in him. But as we see in today's study, Many others knew about his miracles and not only opposed Christ, they actually plotted to kill him. The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 45 through 50 and verse 53. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, What Shall We Do With Jesus? I think we should consider the wonder of it all and how the people there must have reacted at the time. We could put it like this, would they believe in Jesus or would they disbelieve? Would they become his followers or his enemies? As we read the sequel to the story, we're not surprised to find that both were true. That is, some believed while others disbelieved. And we're not surprised because the situation is the same today as it was then. Indeed, we find, as John said earlier, that there is always a division among the people because of him. In this particular case, there were people who had come to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did and believed on him. We would do well to be a channel for faith like Mary, or the woman of Samaria through whom others believed. If we had more time, we could reflect on this very profitably. The story does not allow us to do that, however. For no sooner are we told that some believed than we are also told that others did not. In fact, these did worse than merely disbelieve. They actually reported on Jesus to the authorities, who then held a council. We're told of them, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. What a strange counsel this was, and what an evil one. We look at the action of those who witnessed the raising of Lazarus, 
then went and told the Pharisees, and we say, how could they show such ill will toward Jesus? How could they be so hateful to him and so impervious to his miracles? But then we look at those to whom they reported, and the hatred of the first group seems almost mild by comparison. Presumably the bystanders reported to the Pharisees, who in turn informed the Sadducees, who then called a meeting, either officially or unofficially, of the great Sanhedrin, the supreme governing body of the nation. So here were the best men of the nation, at least in their own opinion. There were the chief priests in their robes. The chief priests were all Sadducees. There were the Pharisees, the holiest men of all in their phylacteries. They met in holy council, no doubt, they even opened their meeting with prayer. And yet, what were they meeting for? Well, they were meeting to oppose a perfectly innocent man. He was a man who had been doing great miracles, so great, in fact, that a proper counsel should have been one on how to encourage his work and lead multitudes to follow him. Moreover, it was a very unlikely coalition— the Pharisees, strictly speaking, were not a political party at all, though they had political power due to the fact that they were so highly regarded. Actually, they were a religious party or denomination. They were concerned chiefly with observing such minute requirements of the law as had been developed by the rabbis and with encouraging others to do so. They were sticklers for detail. One example of their outlook is seen in the objection of Nicodemus, who was probably a Pharisee, to the proceedings in the council held earlier. Nicodemus is reported to have said, by way of objection to what was happening, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? Now, on the other hand, there were the Sadducees. These were not religious men, though some undoubtedly played at religion for their own ends. These were the politicians. Moreover, they were wealthy and aristocratic, and they collaborated with the Romans to preserve their privileged position. These men had much to lose, particularly if there should be a civil disorder, for that would bring swift intervention by the Romans. So, they compromised to preserve their position. If justice and civil order ever came into conflict, well, the Sadducees would always be found on the side of the Romans in preserving civil order. Now, the interesting thing is that these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were enemies or rivals. That is, they hated each other and often opposed each other bitterly. And yet, this is the wonder. We find them working together here in their opposition to Jesus. Well, why was this? Clearly, because their opposition to Jesus was more important to each of them than their rivalry with each other. The Pharisees hated Jesus for his religious views. He exposed their sin. The Sadducees hated him for being a threat to their privileged position. Different reasons, but both hated him, and so they collaborated. A little later, we find exactly the same thing in connection with Herod and Pilate, who were also enemies, but who made common cause in doing away with Jesus. Luke tells us, And Herod, 
with his men of war treated him, that is Jesus, with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. This is all quite interesting, because the situation gives us wonderful insight into the hearts of sinful men and women. Men would rather unite with their enemies than follow Jesus. Winston Churchill once said facetiously, that if Hitler invaded hell, he was sure he'd be able to find a good word to say for Satan in the House of Commons. Well, many people are like that spiritually. They will agree with anybody and work with anybody rather than Jesus. I hope it's not true of you. I hope rather that you have seen the folly of such an outlook and have come to him. Now we need to notice further that the council of the Pharisees and Sadducees, convoked with such an evil intent, proceeded next to equally evil deliberations. First of all, they muddled about an indecision. What do we, they said, for this man doeth many miracles? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation." The most striking thing about this discussion is the unintentional confession of Christ's strength versus their weakness. And it's the more striking in that it happens on several levels. For one thing, there's no attempt to deny the miracles. This man doeth many miracles, was their testimony. There was an earlier point, we may remember, when these same men sent officers to arrest Jesus and admitted after the soldiers had returned empty-handed that they really did not know what he was doing. But now they do know, and still they deny him. One commentator has written, they owned the genuineness of his miracles, yet were their consciences unmoved. Another says they admitted the miracles, yet denied the miracle worker. Moreover, they admitted that they had been powerless over a considerable period of time, for this is the effect of the question with which the discussion began. What do we? This question does not mean, what shall we do? This misrepresents the Greek. Actually, the religious leaders were acknowledging that their efforts had for a long time been ineffective and that they were now at their wit's end. We might capture the true force of the question by translating the sentences, Look how Jesus is growing in popularity. What are we doing about it? Implied in the question is the admission that a new policy is needed precisely because the old one is not working. Jesus' plans were working, but theirs were not working. Their efforts were weak, but he was strong. I said earlier, that the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees collaborated against their natural instincts to do away with Jesus reveals the nature of sin in the heart of man. That's true. But the same point is even more obvious here. Sin had formed these men and hardened them. Thus, no matter what others did, no matter even what Jesus did, these men were determined not to believe on him. In fact, they would not even raise the question of whether his miracles ought not rather to be taken as evidence that he was who he said he was, or 
even that he was a prophet to whom they should listen. They had already shut their ears to such issues and were only seeking a way to stifle his influence or eliminate him. Does this seem extreme to you or foolish? Well, it is foolish, of course, but it is not so very different from what many do today. A number of years ago, a lady was invited by a friend to go to a gospel meeting. I'm afraid to go for fear I'll get converted, she answered. Imagine, she was afraid that she might get straightened out with God. On another occasion, a minister said to a certain woman in his congregation, I have not seen your husband lately. Has he lost interest in the gospel? The woman answered, Well, he is afraid to come, for when he comes and hears the word, it takes him nearly two weeks to get over it. What are we to do with such a one? Or, again, what are we to do with you, if this is your policy? Well, we will not give up. We will keep on preaching the word, but be careful that you do not slip away forever, like these Sadducees. Well, what did they do? How did their counsel end? One of them, named Caiaphas, stood up and counseled sordid self-interest. He didn't put it that way, of course. He said, as politicians always do, we must think of the good of all the people. But this is what he meant, and because he meant it, he succeeded in swaying the council, for it was on this level, the level of self-interest, and not on any high level of rule by law or the good of the nation, that these malicious men were malleable. Caiaphas said, and we're going to return to his words in more detail in our next study, "'Ye know nothing at all.'" nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. I'm impressed with how cleverly Caiaphas spoke. He began by dismissing all comments by all previous speakers. You know nothing at all, he dogmatized. That is, everything said thus far is foolishness. Then, quite eloquently and simply, he advised that it was better that one man die, even though he was innocent, than that all should perish. And he won. He won. First, he won in the council. We read, then from that day forth they took counsel together to put him to death. And second, he won before Pilate, because it was when Pilate perceived that a riot was developing and that he could be held responsible before Caesar and even viewed as an insurrectionist himself that he released Jesus for crucifixion. Expediency. That was the lever then, as it so often is today. It is always in the name of expediency and self-interest that the most terrible things are done. But then, too, I'm also impressed by the fact that this is not the end of the story. Indeed, we can hardly miss the point that this is not the end, or that John especially tells the story as he does to suggest a quite different end from this beginning. What we have here is actually a remarkable case of high dramatic irony. Caiaphas had said that it was better to kill Jesus than that the entire nation perish. But this is what happened anyway. The very events they dreaded came to pass. Oh, it's true they eliminated Jesus, in one sense at least. But 
In the aftermath of the crucifixion and the gradual scattering of the Christians from Jerusalem, the revolutionary spirit began to grow with intensity in Palestine. A war broke out, and the Romans eventually did intervene to crush the rebellion. In that great war, all the strongholds of Israel were overthrown. Jerusalem was besieged and destroyed, and the temple was left in ruins. In fact, as Josephus tells us, a plow was even drawn across the temple area to stress the desolation. How different events might have been if these men had received their Messiah. But they didn't. They resisted him, and the sin of resistance had consequences. As Barclay says, the very steps they took to save their nation destroyed their nation. Since the destruction of Jerusalem took place about A.D. 70, and since John was writing about A.D. 90, according to some conservative estimates, no one who read the gospel in John's day would fail to miss this irony. Moreover, they would not miss the irony inherent in a thriving Christianity either. The Sanhedrin had acted as it did in order to put down Jesus. If we let him thus alone, they said, all men will believe on him. But what happened? Men believed on him. They killed him, but it was through his death that the gospel spread. And not only throughout Judaism, but to all nations. Indeed, as John wrote these words, there were Christians in every major city and in every country of the empire. And others, many of them, were believing daily. You cannot frustrate God, do you see? You can oppose him, but only you will pay the consequences, as did these men. You may oppose him, but Christianity will spread. The Bible says, Surely even the wrath of men shall praise thee. The Bible says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. So let me turn the entire story of the Jerusalem Council around in order to address you personally. It began with a question, what do we, for this man doeth many miracles? Make this your question, what will I do? What am I doing with the miracle worker? There are only three choices for you as far as I can see. The first is to try to ignore him. Many try this, of course. You may be trying it, too. But let me say that if this is your situation, I do not believe that you can get very far along with it. Why? Because he does too many miracles. He did them then. He does them today. Don't you fear that if you let him alone, all men will believe on him? And if they do, what will you do? How will you survive in such a Christ-centered world? How will you ignore him when your daughter believes, when your son believes, your husband believes, your wife believes, your father believes, your mother believes, your friend believes? And how will you ignore him on that day when, as we are told, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Is he ignorable? You must answer that question. Is Jesus really one whom you can thus put down. Your second choice is to oppose him. 
Many have taken this course too, as we know. Caiaphas was the first, but certainly not the only or even the worst persecutor of the Nazarene. History is full of those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ. But where are they? The church remains, but what has happened to the persecutors? Not long after the persecution of the early Christians instituted by Caiaphas and the other leaders of the Jews, Rome also tried to stamp the church out. Under Nero, the Christians in Rome were gathered up and executed as scapegoats for the great fire. Some were sewed up in animal skins and mauled by bloodhounds. Some were bound to oxen and thus torn to pieces in the arena. Many were crucified. Some were dipped in pitch and set on fire like torches in order to light the gardens of the mentally deranged emperor. Under Diocletian, several centuries later, churches were destroyed, sacred books confiscated, clergy imprisoned, and many believers forced to sacrifice to the pagan gods by torture. But the more they were persecuted the more the early Christians thrived until, at last, the gods of the heathen were overthrown and Christianity was accepted as the faith of the empire. This has repeated itself again and again in world history. During the Middle Ages, true Christianity survived only in some small rural areas, and the devil may well have thought that at last he had conquered Jesus. But then... The Reformation burst forth, and Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and many thousands of others were soon proclaiming the truth in many lands. What do we, he might have said, for this man doeth many miracles? Since then, there have been Whitfields and Wesleys, Livingstons and Taylors, Billy Sundays and Billy Grahams, and always the gospel has been increasingly spread abroad by those who know and love Jesus. Can you oppose him? If you do, do you really believe that you will be successful? Will you not rather be in the deplorable company of those rulers who take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us? And of whom we are told, He who sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Moreover, are you not even afraid to oppose him? You know he does miracles. Can you exceed his miracles? Can you even match them? How then do you dare to fight against the supernatural? The last of the three choices is the only sensible one. You can believe on Jesus and follow him. Follow him, you say, but he went to the cross. He was crucified. What's desirable about that? Well, it is true. His way is the way of the cross. But the cross is the way to victory, for it is only by losing life that a man can save it. It is only by following Jesus that the victory is won. If you reject him, you will not win. In fact, you will lose all that you have, as did the Jewish rulers. But if you believe on him and follow him, Though you may lack some things now, you will nevertheless pass beyond that and share his glory. I want to acknowledge that men and women do do good things. There is such a thing as human goodness. But 
The point of it all is that even the best of our deeds are contaminated by sin, and because sin is there, sin can always break forth into death. That's why the noblest ideals and the most sublime ideologies of men often lead to the most devilish actions in practice. If we take one man and compare him with another man, one of the men is always going to look better. And if we do that in large in our society, we can, by a careful process of evaluation, have some men that are at the top and some who are in the middle and some who are on the bottom. And then we say, because we can only see it from that perspective, well, the ones at the bottom certainly need God. And the ones at the top, if they do need God, at least they don't need him as much as the others. But that all comes from looking at it from man's point of view. God, you see, is not fooled by these things. He knows what human goodness is capable of doing, and he knows that it can break out in the very kind of thing that the Pharisees and Sadducees did. Therefore, God will have nothing to do with human goodness. Instead, he saves all men solely on the basis of the goodness of Jesus Christ. And then in the Holy Spirit, he comes to live within the man so that what the man does is really God doing rather than the man doing it himself out of his own sinful efforts. In other words, the person who believes in Jesus Christ literally becomes a new creature in Christ. I need to add, he still has an old nature, and sometimes even as a Christian he does bad things, but as a Christian he becomes capable of doing, in part, what God requires. And our Father, we ask that you will help some as they make their choice today. Grant that if there are those listening who have never come to Christ as Savior, that they might do so in this hour, casting their past behind them and throwing themselves upon him, both as Savior and Lord. And grant that your blessing might remain on those who do believe through Christ our Lord. Amen. You have been confronted with the miracles of Jesus and his call for you to trust and follow him. Will you respond in obedient faith and be saved, or will you oppose Christ and be lost forever? If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, What Shall We Do With Jesus? Or simply ask for message number 1324. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. And when you visit our website, or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write The Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. 
Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts all enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, What Shall We Do With Jesus? Message number 1324. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically.